0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, David and worship team. Ricky, it's good to have you back. Welcome to Grace Community Church. If it's your first time here, we extend to you a very special welcome. Thank you for choosing to be here uh, this morning and worship with us. And, and thank you, Lord, that you brought these people to us. We'll be going through the, some of that kind of stuff in the um, sermon today. One of the great <clears throat> benefits of preaching <clears throat> through a book is that you're in the text every week. One of the great challenges of preaching is that you're in the text every week, all week long, and it's pounding on you sometimes. It seems to me in these first few weeks of preaching through 1 Corinthians, I find myself saying rather frequently on Sunday morning that as believers, we must not confuse the activity of the church with political causes. And then all week long, I find myself thinking about politics a whole lot. Every Sunday morning, it's, We don't talk about politics, no, no, no. We don't talk about issues. Now, for those who are not in the habit of watching children's animated films, that is from a song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, and that's all they talk about. So, please let me say, I'm not opposed to believers being active socially and or politically. But I am saying that we must not bring that into the church as if it is a part of God's plan for the redemption of his people. Keeping them separate is really difficult, no matter which way you lean. Furthermore, please give much thought to your testimony as you participate publicly in political or social Activities. What a blessing it is, though, every Sunday to be brought back to the unexpected, extravagant, and tender love that God has for His people. That's the title of the message today from 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. So far in our study, there have been four messages, three of which are warning to be philosophers and orators in the Corinth church, warning them that reason will never be enough to convince people to believe in Jesus. Nor will the wisdom of this world persuade others to believe, even if the speaker is eloquent. I was thinking this morning, because I've been in this text marinating in this, All week long. And I was thinking as we were singing. Those who don't believe have no idea what we're singing about. In fact, they probably think it's really weird. D.A. Carson, whose name I will invoke again. And sometimes not invoke. Although he shows up in the sermon um, a couple of other times. But D.A. Carson talked about writing a letter to a very bright student at Cambridge. um, One he had been associated with and experienced giving them a, a, a book called, uh, the, oh, it's, it's John Stott's Basic Gospel, something a, along those lines. I've read it a long time ago. I just forgot the name of the book. But this student wrote back and, and said, well, yeah, this Christianity. Seems to be okay for people who are good, but I just, I'm not good enough. And he's like, how do you miss the fact that the gospel is for people who understand they're not good enough? Because their eyes are blind to the truth of scripture. The cross of Christ makes no sense to the world. The gospel. is foolishness to unbelievers, whether they are religious or not. But for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the wisdom and power of God. And beginning with today's text, we're going to see that wisdom is highly valued by the Apostle Paul for believers. But it is the wisdom that comes from God made known to God's children by the Holy Spirit. Before we read the text, there are a few principles for interpreting these verses that are part of a larger conversation. Focusing on the work of the Holy Spirit in making the gospel Known to us. So, first, believers and non believers alike pursue wisdom, knowledge, and maturity, but in very different ways. We make a mistake when we look to the Old Testament simply as a guide to know how to live in a manner that pleases God. One of the major purposes of the law in the Old Testament is to show us that we're incapable of living a life that pleases God. That is why Jesus came to earth. There are, however, patterns that develop in the Old Testament, continue in the New Testament, and are evident in our world today. In the Old Testament, many of God's people gained favor with uh, the world, not because they fit in with the world, but because they trusted the Lord in a place in which they were a distinct minority. Just think about Abraham and Daniel and Ezra and Mordecai and Esther, who followed the ways of the Lord even though everything encouraged them to do otherwise. As we seek God's wisdom, some people are going to despise us, and some will benefit greatly from our presence. But if our desire is to be considered wise in the eyes of the world, if that's our goal, then we're not going to be of much use to the kingdom of God. Second, there is no denying that Scripture makes a sharp distinction between those who belong to the Lord and those who do not. It's one of the reasons they really don't like us. And it's one of the reasons I think that Christians, which is one of the reasons that Christians have such a hard time with this. Look, I don't think I'm better than anybody else, and I, I don't want to project that. That's not what Scripture is asking us to project. It's just telling us that we are different from those in the world. Perhaps one of the reasons this distinction is made throughout the Bible in the strongest terms is to remind us to stay steady when the world actively opposes us. Anything that threatens to weaken your relationship with the Lord is a danger. Parents, this does not mean that your children cannot figure this out for themselves. Indeed, they're going to have to at some point. But it is your distinct privilege while they are at home to guide them and help them understand who we are as believers. And you know what? I'm going to say this. And it's going to be difficult for some of you to, to, to say, yeah, I agree with that. But I think over time you will. It's far more important when we're teaching people about the Lord that we teach them who we are in Christ than it is how you have to behave this, 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 and this time. Again, it'll make sense for most of us so it makes sense. Uh, well down the road. All of, us, all of us at Grace need to be praying much for our youth and our children. If there is indeed a great falling away in our land, which I think there is, they're going to fall first. We need to say, no, this is not who you are. You're not a part of the world You are in Christ. You are blessed to be his child. And this is the benefit of being a child and the responsibility of being a child. Third, God's love and his gracious gifts to his people call for humility, not arrogance. I want to ask you a question. What do Calvinists and Arminians have in common? Well, first of all, I need to define these terms maybe. Calvinists are those who follow various interpretations of the 16th century French theologian John Calvin who taught that God chooses us for salvation and we have nothing to do with it. He he teaches that from his understanding of scripture. Arminians follow the teachings of Jacob Arminius, the 16th century Dutch theologian who said, I I'm not so sure that scripture teaches that. While it's true that God must open our eyes, I think we make the choice to believe. Not debating this today, I think the answer is yes. Both happen, they operate on different planes. I'm wait a minute, I just said I'm not going to say anything about that. I better move on. Look, whichever way you fall, whichever way you land, and the spectrum is broad, and you're all along the spectrum. We all have the common temptation to arrogance. God chose me. I was smart enough to choose. And you're like, no, that's not. Yeah, that's the temptation we have. But God's love and gracious gifts to his people call for humility. Humility, not arrogance. Fourth. Fourth. The Spirit and the Word are inextricably linked. There are very few places in Scripture where everything we need to know about a doctrine, a particular doctrine, is found in one place. There's almost always more support elsewhere. And there is often further explanation in another passage. This caution that the Spirit and the Word should not be separated comes from 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1. But it is crucial that we recall it here because often when people talk about the Holy Spirit, they think that He operates separate from the Word. We're just going along about life and the Spirit just sort of leads us all over the place. He does lead us all over the place, but He leads us through the Word. It's like... This, oh, okay. And so you go in another direction. I'm not going to say that the Spirit never speaks to your heart in a a way that you can't find necessarily specifically in Scripture. But it will never, the Holy Spirit, He will never contradict Scripture of which He is the author. Nor will He ever elevate Himself above Jesus. Last, Wisdom so disparaged in one eighteen through two five is now to be treasured when supplied by the spirit, and once again the spirit operates through the word primarily Chapter two does not begin by teaching about the cross and then suddenly switch to the topic of the Holy Spirit, beginning with verse six, Paul explains how it is that believers make sense of the cross while the world does not. It's because the Holy Spirit opens God's word to us to give us understanding. So this is a place to jump into our text, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. But for context, I'll read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 2. Typically, we stand for the reading of the word But since it's already a long text, even before the extra verses, and since I'll be explaining as I go, I will ask you to remain seated as the word is being read. Before we read, please pray with me. Father, open our spiritual eyes we might behold wondrous things from your word. Amen. 1 Corinthians 2, 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I have a pastor friend this morning who is preaching in weakness and fear and trembling. Pray for him. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Once again, these verses anchor our understanding of the verses that follow. Paul was talking about the cross. Verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom Wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. You think about how many times you would have acted differently if you had known what the Lord was doing. These rulers did not understand, for if they had understood, they would have not crucified. The Lord of glory. So Paul is not at all saying there is no place for wisdom. He is saying however. That the wisdom of this world will not lead you to God. When you think about the claims of the gospel. Strictly on the surface. And especially if you have grown up. Uh, in church. In a church. In our land. Then you're probably likely to say, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me that Jesus came, that God came to earth. God sent his son to earth and he was God in the flesh and he died for our sins. As you know, it does not make perfect sense, however, to the world. And there will likely be times in your own life where you're going to have to affirm in your heart What you believe. Fortunately, that's not up to you. The Holy Spirit guides you. He's not going to let you go. And he guides you into truth. The wisdom of our day says that if you promote biblical values, you might quickly lose your job. Or as we heard from Mike Rader two weeks ago, you might spend 10 years of jail for promoting God's creation order of a marriage being between one man and one woman. Which way is our culture moving? Here is the profound answer from Scripture. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Now, look, again, let me repeat what I said recently. We not only have a privilege... As believers to participate in a government that allows us to have a say. We have a responsibility. I don't see how it's not a responsibility at some level to do so. Always remember though that the wisdom of this age is passing away. The culture will always be opposed to Jesus. Until he reigns in the new heavens. And the new earth. If the rulers of the world had understood this. It would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The stunning truth of this text for those who have believed for a long time is that God designed his plan of redemption before the ages began for our glory. You might have picked up of late that the doctrine of glorification has captured my heart and mind. Of late, we can't stand before a holy and righteous God unless we have been glorified. If you think the Germans had it bad in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they had it bad, you can't imagine what it would be like to stand in God's presence unless He glorified us. Everything in this text cries out against human wisdom. And human efforts to get to God. The notion of our glorification in verse 7 might be the reason we so easily misinterpret verse 9. But we'll get to that in a few moments. Okay, these are deep waters, so time for a break. If, you, if you're if you having trouble following this, let me encourage you to do two things. First of all, especially if you're younger and you see words that you don't understand, write them down, look them up later. Or... Look them up on dictionary.com. Used to trouble me when I saw people on their phones. Now I just, I get it. You're ordering books. You're doing all kinds of things that you see. It's all right. It's okay. As long as you're hanging with the sermon. So words like disparaging. Most of you know that. But some of you don't. Look them up. That's a really good Discipline to help you stay focused on what's being said. And then, second, take notes anyway, even if you don't understand. Years ago, I heard a sermon uh, preached from Psalm 110, and I went back after the conference in which I had heard this sermon, and I looked at the notes carefully to see what I had learned. And I was like, not very much. You know, I didn't learn as much as I would like to have learned from this sermon. But then years later, after a lot more thinking about studying and hearing sermons about Psalm 110, I looked at those notes again, and it made perfect sense. And I have no doubt that writing those notes at the time when I didn't even understand it contributed to my understanding later. So take notes anyway. I understand that some of these sermons uh, from the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians are technical and somewhat deep, but they're nuggets for us all. And again, it's laying a foundation for the rest of the book and for our understanding, whether that be soon or later. So back to verse 7 where you might think, okay, going back under. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, this is from the English Standard Version, which is the translation I use when I'm preaching almost always. Occasionally, I'll use another one, but very, very seldom. This is one of those instances where the ESV might not be the best translation. If you have almost any other translation... You will find the word mystery in this verse from the Greek word mysterion. Mystery in the New Testament refers to a truth that was hidden in the past in the Old Testament and then now through Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection has been revealed to us in Christ. It's almost it's like when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees in John 5 and he said... You keep talking about the scriptures, but you don't understand. The scriptures testify of me. It's like the truth was hidden in plain sight. it's not that the gospel is not available to all. But unless the Lord removes the scales from their eyes, they won't see. But the mystery in the Old Testament has now been revealed. That is Jesus in the flesh. Come to earth for our salvation. The gospel is that mystery. Then verses 9 through 11. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things... God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Verse 9 is about heaven, right? So I'm about to get in a great deal of trouble. That might be a secondary meaning or application in which heaven, as we understand heaven, is referenced in verse 9. But the context surrounding this verse, both before and after, refers to the wisdom of God in Jesus that can only be understood by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I... No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him, refers to the mystery of Jesus tying for our sins. Since Isaiah 64, 4, from which this verse is formed, speaks of end time salvation it is possible that the eternal reign of Christ is a secondary meaning. But the gospel is front and center in verse 9. I always wondered, you know, when people say, oh, that's talking about heaven. No eye has seen. But then verse 10 says, yeah, but he's, he's explained it to you. And there's a lot about heaven we don't know, right? I think we're invited to speculate about what heaven's going to be like, but we always have to keep speculation and the truth of Scripture separate. As verse 10 indicates, these are deep waters and we can only survive and thrive in them through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, D.A. Carson, uh, whom whom I've already referenced, identifies three contrasts that Paul makes in our our text. These are very simple, very straightforward. I don't know if you're going to have time to write them down. Just get them in your mind. As we go through. um, But they're easy to identify in the text. Once you see them listed. So first of all. There's the contrast between those who receive God's wisdom. And those who do not. In chapter 2 verses 6 through 10a. Secondly the contrast. Between the spirit of God. And the spirit of the world. Is very clearly seen in this text. Especially in verse 10b through verse 13. And then there is the contrast between the natural person and the spiritual person in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Maybe you can see that all of today's list, this being the second of three lists, are intended to help you make sense Of the text. So I hope that you understand that. So let's read the rest of our text, verses 12 to 16, before making application. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual Person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. That doesn't mean, hey, I'm right with the Lord, the Holy Spirit's talking to me, you got no right to criticize me at all. That's not at all what he's saying. He's just, remember, the contrast is between the godly and the ungodly, or the one who believes and the one who doesn't believe. So he's just saying that they don't understand what you understand. But you are able to discern things spiritually that they cannot. 4 verse 16. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? You remember last week when we were talking about a lot of the questions people are asking? Well, the Bible's just not answering those questions. Some of them, anyway. We're asking the wrong questions, but we've been trained to ask the wrong questions by the wisdom of the world. Time to stop maybe even asking questions and try to absorb what Scripture tells us that God is doing. We'll talk about that a little more fully in just a moment. We have, verse 16 says, the mind of Christ. So four points of application from our text that build upon all that we have learned at this point in 1 Corinthians. And these four points build on one another. First, seek not only the knowledge of God's truth, but seek an understanding of his ways. So this is what I was just referring to. At some point, I've been thinking about this, how we come to the Bible, what it is we expect to receive from the Bible when we come to sit down and read and study and hear from the Lord. So at some point soon I'm going to think about three ways that we study Scripture, but I'm still thinking about it. Uh, the more time I spend in the Word, the more fascinating I find God's ways to be. As we learned last week, the Bible is not answering those questions, but he is answering the right questions. So as I read and study, I am discerning the ways of God and trying to learn how my life fits into his plan, even when life doesn't make sense. Think about it. I am learning about God's ways and how my life fits into His plan rather than seeking to find out what He can do for me in His Word. Second, live as though you believe that the wisdom, politics, entertainment, etc. of this world are passing away. Doesn't feel like it though, does it? Doesn't feel like these things are passing away. They are of supreme importance. And don't you know that this next election is the most important in our nation's history? <laughs> If this is true, it makes our position very tenuous indeed. Or it could be an extreme overreaction. I think it's the former rather than the latter. But hey, what difference does it make? Either way, we forget that this world is passing away. As is the wisdom of this world. Although it is difficult to think That much of what we hear that is not biblically based is undergirded by really any sort of wisdom. Think about the people in whom we place so much of our hopes. People that don't know the Lord at all. This world is passing away. What seems so important today will be soon forgotten. Even those memories that live for centuries will pass away. Do you believe that? Then live as if you do he says, to himself as well as to others. Third, thank God often for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, leading you to Jesus and giving you wisdom, knowledge, and maturity that will not pass away. So we see this term, those who are spiritual. What it means to be spiritual in our text is tied to the cross. We didn't stop talking about the cross in verse 5 and then start talking about the Holy Spirit in verse 6. All of the first four chapters are about the same thing. About finding your place at the cross that brings unity, not division. Any insight that we have about the Scripture and God's ways comes to us from the work of the Holy Spirit as He opens our spiritual eyes to the truth of Scripture. So just as last week's text led us to thank God even for the difficulties that help us to live a cruciform or a cross-centered life, so this week's text should Stir a spirit of gratitude in us for the Father's unexpected, extravagant, and tender care for his people, made known to us by the Holy Spirit. Last, oh, and this is a hard one. Rather than allowing yourself to be frustrated with the ways of the world, Pray that God will open the eyes of those who do not believe in Jesus so that they will see the wisdom and power of God revealed in the cross of Christ. That's half the sermon right there, I think. People rarely rush to believe what they consider to be foolish. And... In, in, And yet, we continue to say things like, Oh, if you just... I I don't know how you don't understand this. I don't know how you don't get this. How do you not believe? Even the most sensitive, intelligent, or caring people among us cannot believe unless the Lord opens their eyes and gives them the understanding to believe the gospel. Pray for those with whom you were associated and who seem to not be able to understand. Pray this week for Donald Trump if you can't stand him or Nancy Pelosi if you like him. Just pray for people that are completely on the other side. Pray that God will open their eyes and be merciful to him like he's been merciful to us. In humility, pray that. There is a a reason for their unbelief. Whenever you are associated with an unbeliever, it might be that God is using you is going to use you to preach the gospel to him or her. And as we we will learn next week, your role may just be to present a piece of the gospel. And in God's ways, He may use that to open their eyes. And may the Lord open their eyes and bring them into His family. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, I I imagine that we have heard this morning either um, the same thing over and over or feels like drinking from a fire hydrant. But, Father, your ways are magnificent. You have called us into your family and you bestow upon us great and beautiful love And you give us gifts in your blessings. One of the greatest gifts is the Holy Spirit that points us to Jesus. In your great plan, Father. And so this day as we have sat in 1 Corinthians 2. We pray that the truths that we have heard. And of which we have been made aware will sink deep into our hearts and that we will give thanks for your goodness to us and that our burden will be not for other people to change, but for other people to have their eyes open that they might see and believe the gospel. We yield ourselves afresh and anew to you this morning. In the name of our Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen.